Welcome to this week's episode of Christ Center Conversations, a Come Follow Me podcast where Celia and I interview everyday Latter-day Saints who are striving to become more like the Savior. As we mentioned, we are not professional scriptorians nor religious scholars and have created this podcast to give a new perspective on how to approach the scriptures. We want to offer ideas, insights, and viewpoints that anyone and everyone can find as they study the scriptures with accessible tools and resources available to all. Today, we have the awesome opportunity to have Monty and Natalie Taylor on with us. Monty and Natalie are in our ward here in Provo and also happen to be one of the other five Taylor families in our ward. We always like to say that we're one A and one B in terms of Taylor families, but we haven't settled on who's the A or B yet. Apart from that, they are both such spiritual giants, and we are so lucky to have them with us today. So that being said, why don't you guys introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your story. Hey, my name is Natalie Taylor, and I'm from Sandy, Utah. Monty and I met when we were Aries at Heritage. He got back from his mission, and then a week later, training started, and we met through that. And then he asked me out a month later, and the rest is history. We got married in July of 23, and now live in Wymount, and we love our time here. Yeah, we, we're super excited to be in this ward. We are thrilled to be Taylor number five here in the ward. We're hoping through this podcast we can prove ourselves and move up the ranks a little bit, uh, maybe get into the two or three spot. But no, we're so excited. We love reading the scriptures together. We are not the best at it, but we, just like all you guys, right, we strive to understand what's going on and we love hearing the Taylors and their intent as well. So we're excited to, to dive into second by here. Yeah, we're incredibly lucky to have the Taylors on with us today. And I'm just jealous of Monty and his radio speaking voice i've always admired that in him so with that being said let's let's get into these chapters today and and as we go through we're gonna be talking about the prophet isaiah and we mentioned him last week and about why he's in the book of mormon and today we're gonna look more deeply at what he's actually trying to tell us and again why nephi decided to add these specific chapters into his writings as he had limited space and it was difficult to write upon gold plates so we wanted to kind of look at why are these verses and chapters included in, in these chapters this week and why Nephi decided to add these specific writings of Isaiah as, again, they are so important. So with that being said, let's dive right in. Okay, to get started, we just want to preface these chapters of Isaiah about going over the four themes. Disclaimer, though, I did not come up with these whatsoever. Like Carter said, we are not scriptorians. This actually comes from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. I will swear by it anytime I read the scriptures. You literally can just Google Book of Mormon Institute Manual LDS and it will come up pretty fast. And it does really good at diving in depth into these verses. It will pick apart little words that you don't know especially in the Isaiah chapters, because there is a lot of things that we don't understand in Isaiah. But overall, here are the four themes that the Institute Manual points out to look for in Isaiah. If this is your first time studying or your 75th time studying, you can study these one at a time, or you can look for all four of these at the same time. But the first theme we want to talk about is the judgment of God and needed repentance. Our second theme is covenants of God and his promises to the house of Israel. The third theme is Christ's first and second coming. And then the last theme are major events in the latter days. So like Celia was saying, we're going to kind of look at these four themes throughout the included chapters of Isaiah here in 2 Nephi. And again, looking at why Nephi included these particular chapters. Something that I wanted to add, though, is this idea that my dad and I were actually talking about earlier today. And it's this idea or second simplicity. And what does that mean? So the, the scholars came up with this 
theory of how we understand things and how we come to gain a deeper understanding of, of complex things. And so there's three stages. The first stage is first simplicity, and that is related to things that really anybody can, can find simple and can find to be easy to understand on a baseline level, whether that's reading children books or things like that. Everything, everybody can find it kind of easy. The second stage, however, is, is complexity. And, and these are topics which we a lot of times have a hard time understanding. My dad mentioned that he went to go see the play Hamlet a few weeks ago with my mom and he was sitting there and he's kind of like me, right? He loves sports and sometimes is in tune with musicals and plays. And he said he was completely lost the whole time and had no idea what was going on. And he said, my mom, on the other hand, was enjoying it and was laughing. And he was laughing along with her and was not getting the joke because he had no idea what was going on. And so he said that my mom had entered into this third stage, which was second simplicity. And that's where we have studied things difficult uh, level. And we've taken the time to dive deep and we reach this stage of second simplicity where even complex things become easy for us to understand. And we understand, for example, Isaiah in this case, and, and Nephi always talks about how Isaiah is one of the plainest books ever written. And I'm always like, why, how would he say that? Like, I, I would completely disagree. I don't think Isaiah is plain to understand at all, but it's because Nephi took the time to dive deep, to understand the history of the Israelites, to understand what are some of the symbols that Isaiah is including? And he's reached this level of second simplicity where Isaiah is simple to him because he took the time. Something else I wanted to add too is that Nephi includes the chapters from Isaiah that were most important for our day. There's a lot of chapters in Isaiah that kind of talk about things which don't relate to us on a, on a deep level. However, he included these particular chapters from Isaiah because they speak about Christ and they also speak about our day. So that's one of the main things that we were going to look at today as well. But we wanted to throw it over to Monty and Natalie and ask them about their opinion on how we can approach reading Isaiah and what are ways in which they've been blessed from, from studying the words of Isaiah here in the Book of Mormon and also in the Old Testament. Yeah. First of all, what you guys don't know is that the Taylors are also our Sunday school teachers. So they actually feed us these answers. No, they don't. <laughs> this is our, these are our independent thoughts. But something they mentioned, which is also in the Come Manual, that um, Natalie and I were talking about just this week are just certain keys to understanding Isaiah, right? Mm -hmm. The first thing is always looking for Christ within these verses. I think that goes back to what you were saying, Carter, about the simplicity beyond the complexity. We can get caught up with the names and the geography and the language of Isaiah that we miss reading in between the lines and seeing Christ and the covenants that Christ is making with, with his people, which is Israel, right? We often see Israel depicted as, as a woman here and talking about the children of Israel and them being rejected or them being left by Christ. But I think as we see Christ within these verses, we're able to find how that applies to us specifically, which is the other thing that the Come Follow Me manual mentions, which is applying these verses to our own lives, right? And so these these two things are, I think, are great ways to approach reading Isaiah. I'm just looking for that simplicity beyond the complexity and trying to understand, okay, how does this verse help me and what does this have to do with with my personal conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, and I think going along with that, there are lots of ways that you can be blessed by reading Isaiah. One, for one thing, you get like the credit of saying you can read Isaiah, <laughs> which a lot of people struggle with. So I think that's something definitely to take into account. But Isaiah also talks a lot about Christ, and it's really a blessing to be able to comprehend what he's trying to say and what he's trying to communicate with us and like really build a deeper relationship with Christ through Isaiah. Thanks guys for sharing your thoughts about how we can approach reading Isaiah and in what ways we are blessed by trying to understand Isaiah and extracting what he's trying to teach us about Jesus Christ. And I think that's the goal here is finding Christ in the words of Isaiah. Because again, like Monty was saying, we can get caught up in all these specific names or these countries that we really don't know a lot about. But the reason that we put in the effort to try to understand the geography, to try to understand Israelite history, is to understand what Isaiah is teaching us about Jesus Christ and what Nephi found important from these. So I wanted to get into the text now, and we're going to look at 2 Nephi 11, which is Nephi's, still Nephi's own words here. And I wanted to look at 2 Nephi 11 four through five. And in these verses, he kind of outlines exactly why he's adding Isaiah in here because of two things. So the first thing here, it says in four, behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. And I thought about, you know, what does a type mean? What does it mean to typify Christ? And, and as I looked this up and found answers to it, The main theme was that a type of Christ is something that foreshadows Christ, but also is something that in our day is symbolic of Christ. And I had a really great conversation with my dad today, as I was mentioning before, about what are some types of Christ that we see in our everyday world, right? As we go to bed at night, it's symbolic of Christ going to the grave. And in the morning we wake up and it's his resurrection. And we also see the sun going down and the moon coming up. And again, it's sort of a death to resurrection symbolism here and the seasons changing and trees losing their leaves and dying and coming back in the spring is a type of the resurrection of Christ. And we can look at almost anything in life of nature and things of God. And we see how Christ is in everything that we, we see. So that's one of the things that Nephi is pointing out about Isaiah is that Isaiah has so many types of Christ throughout his writings. And As we take the time to try to understand Isaiah and get to know his world a little better, we'll be able to see all those types of Christ. And there's so many chapters that I've read this week where I was like, I found a type of Christ and it's a chapter that I've normally just glossed over and not really cared about in the past. So I think it's great to, again, try to find Christ in every page of Isaiah. The second thing that Nephi adds about why he includes Isaiah here is in verse five. It says, And also my soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made to our fathers. Yea, my soul delighteth in his grace and in his justice and power and mercy and the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. So we see here too that Isaiah includes the covenants that were made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we look at that, that's something that's really been focused on in general conference in the words of modern prophets and apostles is that we need to look towards our covenants. There's been a lot of talks about covenant belonging and what it means to be a covenant people. And in, in Isaiah, we kind of get a better understanding of the covenants that were made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those covenants are extended to us as we are baptized and join the house of Israel through our baptism again. And I really like how Isaiah makes 
even though his words are complex, he makes clear what the blessings are from being from the house of Israel and, and the Lord's covenant people. We'll see throughout these chapters how there's a lot of destruction language. I took a class from Kerry Muelstein about the writings of Isaiah, and he talks about there's doomsday language, basically. And we see these scary things that will happen in the latter days, but it always ends with, and the Lord protected his covenant people. And I find a lot of peace and comfort in the fact that as I've made covenants with the Lord, I'll be protected from destruction and danger and things that will take me away from God. The purpose that Nephi claims is why he adds Isaiah into these chapters is found in verse six here in chapter 11. He says, and my soul delighteth in proving unto my people that save Christ should come, all men should perish. For if there be no Christ, there be no God. And if there be no God, we are not. For there could not have been there could have been no creation, but there is a God and he is Christ and he cometh in the fullness of his own time. And so I like how if we look for types of Christ in, in Isaiah and we look at the covenants, these are the things that bring us closer to Christ and deepen our conversion to him. And so again, we want to throw it over to Monty and Natalie and ask them, how has their soul delighted in Christ as Nephi's soul delighted in Christ? I would say my soul has delighted in Christ most when I recognize the love that he has for everyone in every single thing Christ did in his life, especially when he performed the atonement. He just really was showing everyone how much he loves us and how much he loves us individually as well. And whenever I think about Christ, I think about that love that I can show to others as well. And it makes me feel more loved by him and feel more happy. It also helps me recognize that if like someone wrongs me or if I'm like offended at something, then I can just think about Christ and think about what he would do in the situation. And that brings a lot more joy into my life because then I'm not focusing on these negative things and, and these trivial things, and I'm rather focusing on them as a child of God and as his brother or sister as well. And it makes it a lot easier to just live joyfully. Definitely testify that Nada does a great job of, of delighting in Christ and being an example of Christ. And I love what she said about letting his love permeate our lives and for me personally i'm getting a little ahead of myself into the the next section giving a little sneak peek for you guys into chapter 12 but as we mentioned nephi's soul delighting in the covenants of the lord i find that i draw most closest to christ and my soul delights in christ the most when i'm in the temple learning about him through the covenants of the temple and that's how my soul is able to delight in him uh, because i learn of him and i learn of how I'm connected to him through my personal covenants. I'm very grateful to Monty for sort of guiding us in here to <laughs> second Nephi 12, which again, like he said, was the next section we're getting into. And, and that brings us to the topic of the temple. And I know a few weeks ago, we talked a lot about the temple, but today we're going to actually talk about what it means to be instructed by the Lord in the temple and, and what it is we actually do in the temple. Why do we go to the temple? What about the temple brings us closer to the Savior. Uh, so let's read 2 Nephi 12, 2 through 3, which is some famous scripture, especially for Latter-day Saints. And it says here, And it shall come to pass in the last days, when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to that mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I love these scriptures because we get a very clear image of what it means to 
go to the temple and be instructed by the Lord. And I love also this idea that all nations shall flow into the temple. And I want to share an experience that actually my friend Jake Harvath, who was on with us for our first episode, shared with me while we were on our mission. And he talked about how when he was in high school, he was a temple worker at the Provo City Center Temple. And he said that there was a Filipino man that would come in all the time. And he had thousands of names from his ancestors. And apparently he had moved to Utah because the Philippines temple where he was from was unable to keep up with him, basically. Like they didn't have enough people to to keep up with the amount of names that he was bringing in. I just thought that was really beautiful and poignant here, how all nations shall flow into the temple, right? This man was from the Philippines and he was able to do work for his ancestors from centuries beforehand. And I love too how we get this image of the mountain of the Lord's house, which we always in Latter-day Saint culture kind of refer to the temple as sort of the mountain of the Lord. It's a place above the rest of the world and a place that we are closest to God. I love this image of being close to God on a mountain and and almost touching the skies, right? I'm from Richmond, Virginia. It is flat as can be. And as I've gone to the temple, I feel like I'm above the earth and I feel like I'm almost sort of like float, floating in the clouds and able to learn about the Savior and, and His ways. And I also like in 2 Nephi 12, 5, how it talks about walking in the light of the Lord. And and I love that song, Teach Me to Walk in the Light, the primary song that we all sang. And I kind of was thinking about how the temple brings us that, that light into our life. And it's something that we really need in this world that's often considered, you know, this dark, dangerous world, how the temple brings a light into our, into our life. And, and the source of that light is, of course, the Savior. But we wanted to ask Monty and Natalie here, Referring back to 12.3, what does it mean to be taught of his ways and walk in his past while we were in the temple? I think it's a great question, right? What really are the, the ways of the Lord? And it goes back to, to the covenants of the Lord in my, in my mind that in the temple, especially in the presentation of the endowment, which you can read about all, all, all about that on temples.churchofjesuschrist.org, learning about not only what the Lord has done, right? What Christ has done and following his path there, but learning about what the way of the Lord is, meaning what are the laws of the Lord? What kind of things does the Lord do in order to, to be the Lord, to be exalted, to be God, right? And ultimately, I, I, I believe in the temple, we are taught of his ways and walk in his path as we follow the things that he asks us to do. And as we follow those things, we receive power from on high and start the path of becoming exalted, right? Of eventually reaching the celestial kingdom to live with him and with our families. And and to me, that's that's what it means to be taught of his ways and to follow his path. Yeah. First, when I thought about how how we walk in his path in the temple, I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, we watch the temple video and we do those things and, and it's important to listen and learn. But at the same time, I consider what Christ did in his life and how he was always learning and how he was always like applying what he learned in his life. And like Monty said, he was working to become the best he could become. And it's similar in our ways. What we can do in the temple is we can not only serve others while we're there, but we can also prepare ourselves for the future here on earth and after death as well. So we can really find ways to become more like God and become more like Jesus Christ through the temple. I love those thoughts about what we what we do in the temple and and why 
what we do in the temple ultimately brings us closer to Christ and teaches of, of his ways. And I think about how everything we do in the temple is centered around covenants and, and making promises to God and in return receiving promises of so many blessings and things that we we can see on a daily basis. One of the things I wanted to mention too was something that Joseph Smith once said. He said, what was the object of gathering the Jews or the people of God in any age of the world? The main object was to build unto the Lord a house whereby he could reveal unto his people the ordinances of his house and the glories of his kingdom and teach the people the way of salvation. For there are certain ordinances and principles that when they are taught and practiced must be done in a place or house built for that purpose. And I think about the sacredness of the things that we do in the temple, right? A lot of people misunderstand what we do in the temple as being secretive, but in reality, it's, it's more sacred. And I like thinking about it that way, where we're not trying to keep people from going to the temple. In fact, we want people to go to the temple. We want people to make those sacrifices to make covenants in the temple and then ultimately bring others to Christ and to the temple through family history work and doing those ordinances for those who have passed on before us. And, and something that I always, I always think about when I think about the temple is that we're gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. Like President Nelson has talked about, the gathering of Israel is happening for those who are alive and also for those who, are, who have passed on before us. I just want to add something too about temples. Something that me and Carter have been able to do recently, it's something called the Enoch Challenge. I'm not sure if you guys have heard it, but basically what it is, and we want to challenge you guys to do it this week because there is so much power that comes from the temple and it really is one of the best ways to walk in the path of the Savior is you get onto a little family tree app and you click temples and it will pull up what you can pick what you want to do at the temple, whether it's an about, a baptism or a proxy endowment or a proxy initiatory. You can kind of pick what you want and it'll pull up the names from your family tree who still need their work done. And me and Carter actually do not know how this happened. Quite a miracle. We found a couple that needed all of their work done. So every week we've gone to the temple and started with baptisms and have made it all the way to the end where they've gotten sealed. And it has been probably one of the most powerful things. And at least for me, it was from my family side, from my grandma's side, and she passed in 2018. And she was so huge on family family history and doing temple work for them. And so it's it was really cool to find a couple on her side that still needed every step of temple work done. And I just want to testify of the power of that super fast. So anyways, like Second Nephi chapter 13, I wanted to read verse 9. And then we're going to pass it over to our special guest. But in verse 9, it reads, The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and doth declare their sin to be even as Sodom, and they cannot hide it. Woe unto their souls, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. So read the last half of that verse, because I'm really hoping none of you out there are evil. But I love the first part of this verse where it says, the show of their countenance doth witness against them. And I just kind of think like about when I'm walking around in my daily life. Carter <laughs> Carter always makes fun of me because I have a really bad RBF. And if I'm rocking, walking around campus, like people will not go up to me. Like we have missionaries on campus. They will not come up to me at all. It's so bad. And I know it's bad. And I know I need to work on it. Sometimes I think like, oh my gosh, people probably think I'm a terrible person. And and, you know, come to when I make friends and people actually talk to me, I'm just a super bubbly, like super fun person, right? And it just makes me think like, so what is my soul? Like when I meet Christ and when others really get to know me, what does my soul or my countenance show unto them? And so that's something we want to ask Monty and Natalie is, what do you think your soul or your countenance shows unto other people? Or what do you want it to look like when you see Christ? I think it's a great question. I think the first thing I think of is President Nelson when he was talking about the Sabbath day. 
and talking about the principle of what we do at the Sabbath day is what are we reflecting to the Lord? So what we do on this day will show him the things that our heart is really set on. And so I think just thinking about what I want my, or Natalie and I, our countenance or lives to reflect to the Lord, I would just hope, and I, I don't know what Natalie will say, but that it reflects that we love the Lord, that the things that we do reflect that we love others and we're striving to do the best that we can. I think that's not going to be a perfect countenance, right? <laughs> Definitely not a physical countenance. I don't have a perfect physical countenance. Still working on that. But I'd rather work on my spiritual countenance and more than anything, what the Lord sees when he looks on my soul, right? Yeah, something I think about with spiritual countenance is honestly the prophets and the apostles, especially President Nelson, whenever he comes up on the screen during conference, everyone is like, oh my gosh, he's so cute. He's just the best. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, I don't know him personally, but the light that he gives off really makes everyone just love him and everyone feel his love for us. And I think that's something that I want to do is really show that light more and be able to love others, like Monty said, and, and show that we love the Lord. Because I think that can show where where our dedication is and where we want to end up and where we want others to end up as well. Thank you guys for sharing your thoughts about that. I, I just want to add my personal thought about this topic of how I want my countenance to look to other people and as in the Lord as well. Something that I was thinking about is as members of the church, we're supposed to be sort of a light to other people, kind of like Natalie was saying. And, and, in the ways that we show others that the gospel really makes us happy. One of the things that I had an advantage growing up in Virginia was that a lot of people that I was surrounded by weren't members of the church. And I, and I see that as an advantage and also a disadvantage in some ways where I was sort of the only person that they came in contact with throughout their life that was a member of the church. And a lot of times people would ask me why I looked different or why I seemed different. And I would tell them straight up that it was because I believed in Jesus Christ and I was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I had an eternal perspective about the purpose of life and what I was doing here and why I had to go through trials at times. And, and when I talked to people about this, there was sort of a light bulb that went off in their head as to why I looked the way that I did. And again, kind of like Celia was saying, I don't always have the best look on my face. Sometimes I do just kind of look angry or mad or sort of scowling and that's just not necessarily the way I'm feeling but I also want that not just only my facial expressions but also my body movements and the way that I speak to others and the way that I interact with others to show them that I am a happy person because I try to follow the gospel and and the principles of the gospel really do bring happiness into into our life and we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago about living after the manner of happiness and as we follow the gospel biologically certain things happen in our brains and in our brain chemistry that bring us happiness and are able to to kind of reflect in in the way that we look at others the way that others look at us so i i i really like what everyone has said about trying to show to others into the lord that we are his followers and that we're happy for doing so so let's move into second nephi 14 now and we're going to look at second nephi 14 5 through 6 where the lord is described as sort of a refuge to the storm. And I love this imagery. And I think most people who read this verse kind of relate to this. We all live in a world of a lot of turmoil, a lot of stress, a lot of mental illness, a lot of things. 
that seek to strip away our peace. And, and when I think about Christ as a refuge, that would make us refugees. And, and I think about, well, what are we refugees of? What are we trying to avoid? And the powers of the adversary are all around us. And it kind of can seem like we are refugees. We're trying to run away from those forces at all times. And where do we run to? We run to Christ. And Christ is that place of sanctuary and that place of peace and and comfort and protection at the same time. When I think about refugees who are fleeing political crises or economic instability or things like that, I think about the country that takes them in and they they provide a place for them. They provide normally opportunities for jobs and, and things like that. And I think about how Christ provides us with opportunities to be protected from, from temptation, from other spiritual crises, so to speak, in our life. But we want to ask Monty and Natalie here, how can we find refuge in Christ and, and how can he be our source of peace and comfort amidst the turmoil of this world? Something I think about when taking refuge in Christ is Joseph Smith's situation in Liberty Jail. Really a significant part of his life when he was really struggling, he was in the cold and probably absolutely miserable, I would assume. And all he could do was pray and feel that comfort. And and he got his answer, which may have not been the answer he wanted, but it was just like, peace be unto thy soul in DNC 121 7, I believe. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a moment. And that's really special to me because it reminds me that Christ is looking down at us and he is always with us. But sometimes when we don't recognize that, it's going to make every moment feel so much longer and so much harder. But in reality, he is the one we can turn to to feel that peace and feel that comfort in any situation we're experiencing. And sometimes the answers we're looking for might, might not be the answer he wants to give us, but it's the answer we need in the long run. I love that thought, especially that story of Joseph Smith and Liberty Jail. I think that's a chapter that I frequently will turn back to, especially in nursing school right now. I <laughs> I love it, but it kind of feels like my Liberty Jail sometimes, <laughs> especially pharmacology. This is not my favorite. But just to add on to this topic and this idea of refuge in Christ, I think it's kind of what I've talked about last week when I read those scriptures about a season in your life. I think finding refuge in Christ can look like different things to everyone. To some people, it's the temple. Especially living here in Utah, we have, I think, three temples within a five-mile radius, which is pretty incredible. So it's a lot easier for us to get to temples compared to people who may not have one. Whereas in like where Carter's from, his before the Richmond Temple, their closest temple was a two and a half, three hour drive. So sometimes the temple isn't always like the place for people to go to. It can be the scriptures. It can be prayer. It can honestly even be sometimes your just quiet apartment, your room. I know for me, when I was on my mission, and it's something that I really need to get back into, is I would every night before bed, you would you'd get ready for bed, and then you'd say your own personal prayers, and then you say your companionship prayers, or vice versa, however you guys decide to do it. And every night, I said, I love you, sister so-and-so, I'm going to pray. And I'd walk into the bathroom, I'd shut <laughs> shut the door and lock it, and I would kneel down in the bathroom. That way I could actually say my prayers out loud, but not too loud because I was trying to stay somewhat private because <laughs> sometimes I needed to pray for compassion over my companions. But <laughs> that was my refuge in Christ, was being able to be in that room or study or whatever whatever apartment I was in, finding that sacred, finding a space and making it sacred. 
that's what a refuge in Christ looks like, is making something in your everyday life so sacred and holy and set apart. And you can't do that without Christ. You can't. And that's where, and that's why he is our refuge. Like Celia was saying, I love this imagery of seeking refuge in Christ and creating sort of a sanctuary in our own personal life where we can go to in times of stress and in times of desperation. And I think there's can, there can be a literal sanctuary that we go to sort of be private and plead with the Lord on our case. And I think we, there's a place we can go on our mind where the Lord speaks peace to our mind as he did to Joseph Smith. Going forward here, we're going to go to 7515. And I love 7515 because it talks about the latter days, basically. And it talks about how there's going to be a lot of turmoil and destruction and wars and rumors of wars and a whole bunch of stuff going on in the latter days that are trying to take away our peace and try to take away our spiritual capabilities. And and I really like 2 Nephi 15, 26. So I'm going to pull that up real quick and, and read that verse. So it says here, And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. And as I thought, I read this verse today, I was thinking about what it, what an ensign really was. And I found this awesome article from the church that talked about how an ensign in the ancient days was a flag that nations put up in times of battle. And then also an ensign, again, was just sort of a flag, a country's flag. And I thought about what the ensign to the nations was in our day. And, and the first thing, obviously, that we think of is the restored gospel, the restored ch- church as an ensign to the rest of the world. And I like how there's this imagery of an ensign being raised in a time of battle. And the church as this ensign sort of is like the battle call to the rest of the world that we need to join the forces of Christ against the forces of Satan and sort of be the Lord's warriors in this day, so to speak. But something that I wanted to kind of I touch on here was when we have when we raise a flag, we need people to hold the flag in place. And though the enzyme itself is the more important thing, it doesn't have any purpose if nobody's holding the flag up so other people can see it. So I thought about us as the enzyme holders, so to speak. We are those who hold up the church to the rest of the world. And if we don't do our part, nobody can see the enzyme. Nobody can see this sort of battle cry against the adversary. And there's a quote from Gordon B. Hinckley in this article where he said, if we are to hold up this church as an enzyme to the nations and a light to the world, we must take on more of the luster of the life of Christ individually and in our own personal circumstances. And I think this ties really well into what we were talking about before with letting the light of Christ shine through our countenance. And I think a lot of times we get sort of scared to share the gospel with others because we're afraid to be judged or we're afraid that people are going to say things to us that make us question our faith or kind of bring up points that we're unsure of how to defend. And I think one of the ways that we can share the gospel with others is to be an example to them and show that we are happy. And and this is just kind of going back to what we've been talking about before, but taking on more of the luster of the light of Christ individually, letting Christ's light permeate through our souls and showing others that this really does bring happiness and brings more stability to our life. Okay. I wanted to jump in to talk about a verse in chapter 18. So it's kind of a change of subject from what Carter was talking about, but I'm glad he brought up that point. It's chapter 18, verses 6, and it talks about the waters of 
Shiloh is what I want to say. I'm not sure how you say it. So someone comment if I'm wrong, but the waters of Shiloh that goes softly. And like I said, I'm in the Book of Mormon Institute student manual right now, and I'm literally just going to read a quote from there because it explains what they're talking about. And I love the imagery that it says because Isaiah is a man of imagery. So here's what the quote says. Isaiah describes and then contrasts two forms of waters, the soft rolling waters of Shiloh, located near the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, and the waters of the Euphrates, a great river that often floods out of control. The waters of Shiloh are controlled and inviting, whereas the Euphrates is dangerous and destructive. The waters of Shiloh bring life to those who drink them. The Euphrates brings death to those who are swept up in its flood. Isaiah's images of the two waters are symbolic. The former represents Jesus, the King of Heaven, who is likened to the waters of life. The latter is the king of Assyria, who leads his great destructive armies and cover the earth like a flood and destroy the inhabitants thereof. Inasmuch as the inhabitants of Judah had rejected Jesus or the waters of Shiloh, the Lord set upon them the king of Assyria, or the strong and mighty waters of the river that would overflow their banks and cover the entire land with its destruction. Anyways, so it's a little bit of history in what happened with Jerusalem and the people rejecting Christ. I think we can also you know, it's like we're supposed to do like and end to ourselves. And imagine being in a boat and trying to float down either one of those rivers, right? I would definitely want to choose the waters of Shiloh then compared to the Euphrates River. And I think it's just a good reminder of how much we need the waters of life and how much we need Christ and the peace that he brings. I think sometimes with all the things we have going on in our lives, we forget the peace that Jesus is and the peace that Jesus brings. I think sometimes we forget that all our life can seem really crazy. We are so thankful to be on Shiloh and not on the Euphrates, right? And that's just something that I just kind of wanted to throw out there and just how grateful I am for our Savior who is the Prince of Peace. Yeah, I think we're seeing a common theme here with Isaiah talking about those who join the side of Christ usually are protected and, and comforted and those who join the other side usually end up with swift destruction. And we, we read about in Isaiah in his time, Assyria was sort of the big dogs and they were the big country that everyone was afraid of. And they were super powerful and they totally rejected the God of Israel, obviously. And they rejected the Israelites ways and ultimately obviously tried to destroy Jerusalem. And because the people had turned to Christ, they are turned to, to God and to his covenants, they were protected as opposed to the Northern kingdoms, which were completely destroyed by Assyria and carried off to the North and, and lost and scattered and eventually, you know, in our latter days will help to restore them and to gather them, right, as the gathering of Israel. But we wanted to sort of end the discussion today in Second Nephi 19, which is one of everybody's favorites. And we wanted to go to Second Nephi 19.6, which again, one of those verses in Isaiah that definitely leads no room for error and it's pretty easy to understand, and I love this verse because we are given five distinct titles of Christ, and I love each one of these titles because I think it gives such a beautiful image of who Christ is and some of his roles. And one time on my mission, I decided, this was during the week of COVID, that when COVID hit Honduras, I was almost done with my mission, and so I was only in quarantine for about nine days, and then I got sent home and told, like, basically, like, you're done. And the week that we were in quarantine, I went through the Book of Mormon and underlined every title of Christ that we see. And when I got to this verse, it was awesome to be able to underline five different titles of Christ. And by the time I was done, I'll have to go back and check, but I had over 
a thousand different names, or I think it was like a hundred different names of Christ and a thousand appearances of, of his name throughout the Book of Mormon and probably more. I, I need to go check that again. But it says here in verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And each one of these names I've seen Christ perform that role in my life him being a counselor. And I, and I think about sort of like a camp counselor, somebody that's older than you and, and doesn't necessarily do everything for you, but gives you the guidance in order to perform the task that you are assigned to do. And, and then I think about the mighty God, how Christ has all power. He's omnipotent and he's omniscient. He knows everything. And this day of so much confusion and so much wondering who's right, who's wrong, and so much debate and argument and contention, knowing that Christ has all power and he knows all things gives us the source where we can turn for any bit of truth that we need. And that brings me a lot of comfort because, again, I live in a time where I'm not sure who's right, who's wrong, and I know for a fact that Christ will always be right. And then I think about the Prince of Peace, obviously, somebody that publishes peace and publishes tidings of good joy. And I like the word prince because obviously our Heavenly Father is sort of the King of Peace. And I like imagining Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ working together to promote peace throughout the world and and seeing how they've done so in my life and also in the lives of those that surround me. So I've mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I'm in a music class and we were studying Handel's Messiah. And when we came to the song about this verse, the whole song is just them singing this verse over and over again. And the Tabernacle Choir has also sang this song many times. And I really love the emphasis that they, they put on each one of these titles of Christ. And I think it's such, such a beautiful piece of music. So I invite you guys to, to listen to that too as you read this verse. Okay, so I have the responsibility of closing our podcast with this last topic and this last topic is also found in chapter 19 so in this chapter there's a phrase that's repeated three different times and i've gotten like written out my scriptures one two three because whenever something happens three times it means it's a pretty big deal and the phrase that's repeated three times is but his hand is outstretched still and his hand being christ and so we wanted to turn this over to Monty and Natalie to ask them how they seen the Lord's hand outstretched still in their lives and ask them for their final testimonies as well. Yeah, we, again, we appreciate the the opportunity to to share this, our testimonies here at the end. And I think we both, we could share a lot of different stories about how we've seen the Lord reaching out on his hand to us, right? But one thing I just wanted to share, and I'll keep the description of the story brief, but when I was on my mission back a couple years ago, uh, there was a time on my mission where uh, it was a really, really dark time for me. Basically, within three or four weeks, my friend who was serving in Texas, uh, he was in a car accident. Um, and you might have seen this back in the day. Um, but he passed away along with his companion. Um, and this is someone that I'd grown up with. Uh, he was really close to my family. Um, his siblings were really close to my family still. And that happened four days into I was starting to train um, for the very first time. So I was training a new missionary. And... Hard part about that, of course, was that I felt like I needed to be everything for this new missionary who he didn't speak Spanish. He didn't really know what he was doing. Uh, he's awesome, but he was a new missionary. And so I felt like I really couldn't be there for him. And that, that further made me really 
struggle with it. And in that, in that time of, of just kind of despair for me, I'm thinking about my friend and, and his family and, of course, my relationship with him. Uh, I really felt the Lord reach out his hand to me and lift me in a, in a, in a, in a way that I really haven't felt it before, where I, he really was carrying me. He wasn't just pulling me along, but he was carrying me at that time. And so I think the, the important principle I learned from that experience more than anything was the testimony that God is, is there, especially in our trials, in the midst of our trials. And the kind of peace that he offers us is a peace that comes in the trials and through the trials, not what not without the trials, right? And so my testimony from that experience and always has been a testimony of God's love for us. Now, I know that God is aware of us. He's very aware of the details of our lives. And I'm sure that at that time, like God knew not just that week, but the week leading up to that, the things that I needed in order to be prepared for A, of course, the tragedy of hearing my friend um, passing away and B, being able to train a new missionary, right? And so the Lord being so involved in our lives is is a testimony that I have that he's always there for us. And through our covenants to him, that's how we can draw closer to him. Like Monty said, I think I see the Lord most in my life in the little details. Um, one example of this is when I was an FSY counselor, I was so exhausted. I didn't serve a mission, and so I never had experienced like the wake up at 6 a.m. and try to go to bed at 10 and try to have this really good schedule while also serving people and teaching them all day. But as an FSY counselor, you kind of have to do something similar with the youth. And I just remember this one time specifically, my sweet assistant coordinator stayed up with one of my youth during the night and I had no idea. My youth was sick and I was exhausted. So I went to bed And she like answered the call for my youth and was just there the whole time and didn't like complain about it in the morning and didn't ask me to be there. And she just was a big, big blessing in my life that day and my youth life, which meant a lot to me. And I know that she was able to listen to the spirit and really like be Christ's light for me in that moment. And I felt experiences like that all throughout FSY and and throughout my life, honestly. And I would just like to bear my testimony on Christ's light and Christ's hand in our life. I know he will never, ever leave us alone and that he's always carrying us even if we can't tell and that if we look for him, we'll be able to find him. Recently, Monty and I have been trying to talk about what we're grateful for every night and that's made a big difference on how we can recognize Christ's hand in our life and I know that he will never leave us. I just wanted to leave my testimony as well about Isaiah and how important it is to study his words. We read about in 3 Nephi 23, how the Lord himself commands us to search Isaiah because his words will be fulfilled. And also he speaks about our day and he speaks about Christ himself. And I can't think of more scriptures that really speak so poetically and beautifully about the Savior. And uh, again, I'm very grateful for Isaiah. And I've definitely changed my perspective on approaching Isaiah as I've tried to understand him and understand who he was and and why he why he says some of the things that he says and the way that he says them and so again i'm very grateful for isaiah and for the many resources that are available to us to be able to understand isaiah we had a cool experience in sunday school today where people were just looking up on their phone you know what does a stumbling block mean and they were finding answers that brought them understanding of the scriptures and and more insights into the savior's life so I leave my testimony again, and again, these 
conversations are always centered around Christ and we want to make him the focus of our, not only our conversations, but of our life from week to week. So join us next week as we study 2 Nephi 20 and 25, which are some awesome scriptures. And, and I love Nephi's when he talks about Jesus Christ, how his people talked of Christ and rejoiced in Christ. And we'll get to that verse next week. But for me, this is Carter. And this is Celia. And this is Christ-Centered Christ Conversations. Conversations.